Thanks everybody for coming. Um, glad you're here. Um, so before we before we pray, let me start out with this. And we have a conversation about uh, you know liberal versus conservative. Either side of the table tends to get self-righteous and arrogant when they talk about the other side. And uh, if you're self-righteous or arrogant about your theology, you don't get the gospel. Because if you have anything right, it's because Jesus gave it to you. And it's because the Holy Spirit has regenerated your soul and, and awakened you to the truth. And so, um, with that being said, this is really more me talking to myself. If you're a doctrinally oriented person, the arrogance is your, is your, uh, is your, <laughs> it's, it's your constant struggle. So, uh, I just want to start out by saying that, that we're going to try as much as the Holy Spirit will enable me to, to speak with humility and to not be antagonistic and to be as descriptive in this as possible. So let's, um, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, um, we thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. Um, we thank you uh, for the gospel. Pray that you would use this, turn, this time, Lord. Pray this wouldn't be just purely academic. We pray, Lord, that it would be, um, that it would be edifying and would build up our heart and build up our confidence in you. And we pray, Lord, um, that we would walk in the reality of the gospel, and that should that in and of itself should yield humility. And we ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, this class, two-week class, it's got a little um, a little brief history about how liberalism as a movement within the church came to be. And um, and so uh, this week we're going to focus on what is the fundamental difference between liberalism and historic Christianity. What is what is the starting point for that? And then next week we're going to look at, and, th- and that, by, by the way, that fundamental difference is gonna, has everything to do with revelation, has everything to do with what each camp considers to be authoritative sources of revelation from God. Um, and so then we're going to see how that plays itself out practically, how that creates differences in theology. We'll look at that next week. Uh, and so next week we will... Um, We'll look at what positive contributions that liberalism has made in Christianity, and we'll look at some of the negatives as well. Um, but this week is going to be more focused on the right and you know, at the core, what is the fundamental difference between the two. Um, so why are we here? You know, I, I figured there were going to be like four or five people here, so I was going to ask you guys, so, so tell me, why did you come here? What are you interested to hear? I think we don't really have enough time to go through all that. So... Um, so uh, anyhow, what, anybody, how about it? Anybody want to tell me like why you came to this class? Like what you're kind of hoping to get out of this? My children have, t- have a tendency to have more liberal thoughts sure. in terms of theology and doctrine and life in general. And oh. I think it comes out of some of the things that they hear you know, wherever they are in church or in there. Anyway, so that, yeah. that's part of it. Okay. You're learning how to, you know, relate right. better, understand. Great. Very good. Thank you. Um, anybody else? I'm hoping to learn stuff to support myself righteousness because you've got to. <laughs> 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 wow. Pedro. <laughs> Uh, anybody, anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. When did it start? How did we go from a nation founded under God's principles? Okay. Yeah, well, this isn't going to be about so much American Christianity. This is more going to focus on Christianity in the West. Because it starts in Europe, and it trickles over here. And actually, liberalism in the United States has some different nuances than, say, uh, the broader sphere of Christianity. But it gets going in... Um, 
well, that's that's part of it. But it starts to get going. Um, uh, oh, good. College intern just realizing he's supposed to be teaching Sunday school. Um, anyhow, uh, um, busted Johnson, you're on. You're recorded. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, that was not very professional. Sorry, Chip. Anyhow, um, 16th, 17th, 18th century, 19th century. Re- yeah, Enlightenment. We'll, we'll get to that right at the beginning. Uh, anybody else? Any other practical reasons why you came? All right. Well, we'll get going here. Um, <laughs> Why were you? Uh, that's right. Um, okay, for real. All right. That, uh, this is a lady. Um, her name is Margaret Miles, the Reverend Dr. Margaret Miles. Some of you may have heard of her. She's the, one of the premier champions of breast theology. Um, and we read a little bit about Margaret here. This is just an example of what we're talking about with regard to liberal theology. Uh, once honored for voicing substantive theologic theology in the Reformed tradition. Union, Theologicals, Union Theological Seminary's 2010 Sprunt lectures, lectures will feature a feminist speaker who favors replacing the cross with a lactating breast. The event will occur May 3 through 5 on the seminary, seminary's Richmond, Virginia campus. Union is one of 11 seminaries that are officially related to the Presbyterian Church USA. Sprunt lecturer Margaret Miles is a emeritus professor of historical theology graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, employing a title reminiscent of the denominationally sponsored Reimagining God Conference in 1993, Miles' topic is Reenvisioning Historical Theology. In God's Love, Mother's Milk, a January 2008 article that appeared in the Christian Century, Miles argued that the use of the cross to symbolize God's love was a latecomer to church history. Didn't know that one. Thought it, thought it started with Jesus on the cross. Funny. Um, an earlier and presumably more persuasive symbol of God's love, she claims, was the virgin's breast. Although theologians may have claimed that the crucifixion scenes exhibited the extremity of God's love for humans, it was scenes of the child suckling at the breast that spoke to people on the basis of their earliest experience, she said. This symbol was replaced by the cross, argued Miles, when patriarchal Western Europeans secularized the breast. Miles suggested that the cross is inappropriate as a symbol of God's love because it presents a violent act as salvific. The equation of love with heroic violence and suffering is typically a male-centered perspective, she argued, leading to her conclusion that value of the nursing breast as a symbol of God's provision might need to be reconsidered in our own time. In societies in which violence is rampant on the street and in the media, the nursing virgin can perhaps communicate God's love to people in a way that a violent image, the image of one more sacrificial victim, cannot. Okay, so uh, this is not a anti-feminist slam by me. I did my master's thesis in, uh, in uh, graduate school in women's studies uh, in, in the range of education, so I've got, I've got my street cred with feminism. Um, but uh, this is, this is to basically looking at her interpretation of the cross. The cross, you know, is uh, just one more victim. It's a symbol of violence. To say that it communicates love is false. Um, and so, that, you know, this is just kind of an example of People will ask me a lot of times, like, where, where are people, like, where does this come from? Like, where do people come up with these ideas? Because they seem very, very, um, very much to deviate from like historic Christianity. And so, um, and so, anyhow, that's part of why we're doing the class. Um, Gil asked me, what are you, what are you studying in seminary right now? And by the way, the church pays for me to do seminary classes. Thank you for your tithing. Thank you to the church. The church really supports the staff. So feel good about your church. Um, but I'm studying uh, church history right now. 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, and that's that's really the, the rise of liberalism is kind of 
the big, not 16th, sorry, 17th through 20th. That, that's the big uh, issue in those, in those seasons. All right, so um, what defines historic orthodoxy? So before we get going here, let's make sure we're clear on, on who the two camps we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about historic orthodoxy. What basically defines that is uh, ascribing to three things. This is what most people will say. First, uh, accepting the tenets of the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. Uh, secondly, seeing Christ as Savior and Lord. What I mean by that is seeing Jesus as fully, fully divine and fully human, mainly the fully divine part. That's what tends to get lost um, throughout time. And also Jesus, his, his purpose and his work on the cross as, you know, as the act for salvation, the act for forgiveness of sins. Um, and seeing the exclusivity of Christ. That's a part of historic orthodoxy. And then a final part of historic orthodoxy is, is seeing authority in the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean you have to ascribe to inerrancy, uh, you know, but basically you see that you view the Bible as not just a book, but something that's inspired, something that has authority, it's something that has come from God, and it's, it's definitive as far as authority for our church and for our life. So that, that, is, that is historic orthodoxy by definition. Um, now, here's the deal. This is where, this is the fundamental difference between liberal Christianity and historic Christianity. It comes down to what we call revelation and systematic theology. Um, systematic theology, not, sorry, not to, not to go all Adam and Eve here, but systematic theology is basically the study of theology in a systematic and progressive manner. So there are different categories in systematic theology. And it's ways of kind of organizing everything that we believe about different areas of Christianity. So you have uh, theology proper. It's the study of God. What do we believe about God? You know, the Trinity, so on and so forth. Anthropology. That's the study of man. What do we believe about man? Uh, soteriology. Study of salvation. Like, how is man saved? How is man ha- see atonement for sins? You know, it goes all the way through study of the Holy Spirit, eschatology, study of the end times, all these different categories. Well, revelation is the study of what has been revealed to us about God. How can we know about God? It's uh, epistemological in nature. Um, and so... With, um, with revelation, in most systematic theologies, revelation is the first category. It's the one from which all other categories are derived because how can, you, how can you make any statements about man, how can you make any statements about salvation or the end times uh, you know, if you haven't established what is authoritative substance? Uh, and so that is where historic Christianity and liberal Christianity are different, is what is the starting point for what we can know about God. And so uh, in, in classical Christianity, there are three forms of revelation that are authoritative. Uh, the first is creation. Uh, and this is just what we call general revelation. Everyone can know something about God through creation. We can see that there's a creator. We see that there are laws in the universe. The sun rises, the sun sets. The ball goes up, the ball goes down. So there are laws, universal laws. And so we know there's a lawmaker. So there, you know, and we can also see like natural disasters and disease and death. We can also know that there's something wrong. With, so there, there are basic things that we can know about God just through looking at creation. Romans 1 is kind of the classic example of where we see creation as a, as a form of authoritative uh, revelation. Creation in and of itself is not enough. There are two categories of special revelation. And those are scripture and Jesus. Uh, and basically, the idea here is um, for us to know, you know, to know supernatural things, to know things about God, uh, we have to, God has to reveal that to us. And historic Christianity believes that the Bible and Jesus 
are the, the two primary forms of special revelation. With Jesus being the purest form, that, that's the most pure way by which we know about Jesus. But let's be honest, none of us have ever seen Jesus. And so for us in this day and time, Scripture is our primary form of revelation. Everything that anyone in this room knows about Jesus is through the Bible. It's through the, the, the historical witness of Scripture. And so, um, so that's, those are the three forms of revelation. Now, what we're going to see is there's a shift away from those, particularly Scripture and Jesus, but there's a shift away from those forms of revelation. We consider those to be objective forms of revelation. Like, they are what they are. It's, it's, not, it's not dependent upon, you know, our judgment, our experience, so on and so forth. Um, but anyhow, there's a shift uh, that kind of gradually occurs in the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century away from those forms as the authoritative uh, sources of revelation. Uh, first, we're going to look at three. And, and by the way, I mean, y'all, no one wants to have a, 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 like, a long history class, and so I'm going to go over these in very shallow terms. Um, so anyhow, first, first contribution uh, or first factor in this movement away from those forms is, is the religious wars of Europe. Uh, after the Revolu- uh, Reformation, um, there were horrendous religious wars, primarily Catholics versus Protestants, and it did horrendous damage to the church. Um, you have like 30, year, 30 years war, for example, that 20% of the population of Germany dies. Uh, in the course of the Thirty Years' War, okay? And this is, you know, Protestants versus Catholics. Now, you can imagine how that might influence your view of God and the church um, if, if you, you know, see them acting like that. The Huguenot Wars, uh, that's the religious wars of France. Um, you know, I think like, oh, hold on, I've got it right here. 156,000 deaths in the French Wars of, of Religion. Um, so anyhow, you can see this has, this has an influence on people being disenchanted with the church. It's starting to really question God. Everyone, everyone has met people who... Uh, you know, they don't believe in God or they're agnostic or they're atheists and their explanation is I had a really bad experience with the church. Um, you know, so you can imagine if you're seeing people around you die in the name of the church, it's going to rock your theology a little bit. All right, you can go to if you would. Thanks, honey. All right, next, scientific revolution. There is just an explosion in the world of science uh, during this time period. Uh, first, you have Newtonian physics. There are all these discoveries in physics uh, you know, there are these things that people had never understood before, huge sweeping things about the world that now we can start to understand and discover through science. And, uh, and then furthermore, we have uh, Darwin and evolutionary bio- biology. And so uh, just a giant revolution in science uh, comes at this time as well. And, and what we're going to see as the influence of that is there's this major emphasis on empiricism. We really can't know anything unless we can measure it and we can observe it scientifically. So that, that you can imagine that's going to have an influence on our um, on society's view of things that are metaphysical, that are supernatural. Uh, so there's kind of a dismissal uh, and kind of a movement to just viewing things like scripture and miracles and whatnot as um, scripture and miracles as mythology. Like if we can't explain it through science, we really can't believe in that. Uh, we also see a belief that truth is not static, but it's evolving. And so uh, you'll start to see... Um, start to see a lot of theological camps where, you know, what was true back in the first century is not necessarily true now. Um, you know, God is, is an evolving being. His revelation of truth is an evolving thing. And so, you know, that may have been true back then, but now it's not necessarily true. And then also we have this heightened confidence in human ability. That's going to um, really take off with the Enlightenment. Um, all right, the Enlightenment. This is the third historical factor 
and a movement away from historic Christianity. With the Enlightenment, um, there's an emphasis on reason. Uh, there's a mistrust of the metaphysical. And there's this, there's this thinking of we have been liberated from superstition. We have been liberated from all these traditions. And we can now really reconsider and um, re-envision everything. And everything should be suspect to critical examination. God, the Bible, you know, every, every cultural norm. And so, um, and so the Enlightenment is really the biggest, the biggest factor in, uh, in this kind of movement away from historic Christianity. Um, and so just to go through, to give you a sense of like what the thought was during that time, here are just a few of the significant thinkers. First, Rene Descartes. And by the way, most of these guys, they saw themselves as Christians. They're like, I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to you know, seek deeper truth about God. They, they thought they were going about this in a devout manner. Um, that, was their, that was their intention. It's just what came out of it was uh, deviated from orthodoxy. So Descartes, this is what Descartes would have said. If we, we can find God through the scientific method in empirical investigation. People think that Descartes was a skeptic. In fact, he was responding to skeptics and trying to find a way through science that we can find God. And so the, his, his, his influence here is that he starts to, move, um, starts to move the source of authority away from objective revelation, Bible and Jesus, and he starts to shift towards the subjective, like the mind and the reason, that comes above Bible, Jesus. So he's the, kind of the first to tip that scale. All right, next is um, David Hume. He, now, he is the skeptic of, of the Enlightenment. And he would say, if we can't measure it, then we can't know anything about it. Um, what, what do you think, where do you think that he, well, I've already given it away with the slide, but you can imagine that if that's his viewpoint, Hume is going to say, we really can't know anything about God. Because God is, if, God, if there is a God, he's supernatural by nature, and we can't, know, we can't really know anything for certain unless it's measurable, unless it's empirical. And therefore, we just can't know anything about God. Um, and uh, it's really a pretty sad, like fatalistic um, viewpoint that he comes up with. And so he, he really accentuates this mistrust of the metaphysical. All right, next, Immanuel Kant. Uh, Kant is responding to Hume, and um, he's the revolutionary, and he thinks, you know, Hume has gone too far. There's a place for religion. There's a place for God. Um, no need to get in. It's, it's, uh, it's, if Josh Corgan were here, I'd pass the football to him and say, Josh, explain all this. Um, but basically... He, it's called the, the Kantian Revolution, whereby he says the mind is now the center of the world. Like human experience is the center of the world. Um, just like Copernicus, there was a shift from Earth to the Sun. With him, it's uh, the shift from God to the mind. And uh, anyhow, so, so you, again, you can see this subjective, the mind, the, the human experience, the subjective is now the authoritative center of, of kind of knowing truth especially religious truth. And then finally, we have Hegel. Um, Hegel would say that truth is evolving and is seen through history and human experience. That's what he would say. Uh, he would see truth through history, and he would say that God, you know, God is always evolving. And he would also, uh, Hegel said that Christianity is, is not the exclusive form by which God has revealed himself through history, but it's the best form. And, um, and so you can see here he's moving away from Christianity as, you know, as the truth to one truth. And you can also see huge, he has a huge influence 
on theology in the 19th and 20th century because this idea that like experience and God is something that's evolving uh, that's super prevalent in, in kind of liberal thought today in the church. All right, so what, what, is the, what are the overall trends here? All these three factors, the religious wars, the, um, the, religious wars, the uh, Enlightenment, and the uh, scientific revolution, what, you know, what's the, the overall thrust and influence on, on religion? Well, the first is there's a dismissal of the supernatural. There's kind of a mistrust of that, and we're starting to see you know, things like miracles and whatnot as mythology, um, and you know, there's, a, there's a lack of certainty. Like, can we really know anything about God? Can we know anything supernatural? And so that's kind of the first influence. Secondly, a critical approach of all things. You know, we, we need to re-examine everything that we believe. And the big thing in that is um, the human, human reason now, be, now becomes over everything else. Like, the Bible needs to be subject to our intuition. We need to re-examine the Bible, and we need to, um, we, you know, we need to, to really see you know, sift through the superstition, sift through the mythology, and we need to get to the truth on what, what is really the deal in the Bible. By the way, I'm not calling for blind, blind faith here because, like, I think one of the big things to take out of this room is everyone needs to have an apologetic and an explanation on why you believe the Bible is God's word. Um, that is, that's just, that's just for your own faith and for your own confidence in Scripture. That's something you need to believe. And I think there's a pretty darn good explanation and apologetic for it um, that I'm, I'm confident in. Um, but anyhow, I just want to make that clear. Like, I'm not, I'm not calling for anti-intellectualism. Like, we don't need to, we don't need to question things. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to examine. You know, is scripture really legit? Um, but you can start to see there's, it, it goes a little bit over the top. All right. Next, um, truth is subjective and evolving. Uh, we kind of covered that already. And then finally, there's this very high confidence in human ability. Very, very high view of man is starting to brew up. And so, the, you know, I, I have here. What are some of the problems with this thinking? there's this lack of recognition of what you call the noetic principle. Noetic principle is the idea that because of original sin, uh, we fundamentally distort the truth. Like the way we view the world is fundamentally distorted and, and off because of sin. Now, I don't know if you guys can speak to that, but I know for Cameron Cole, the noetic principle is alive and well. Now, thanks be to God, you know, the Holy Spirit regenerates our soul and kind of enlightens us to truth. But, I mean, everyone in here knows what it's like to, you know, somebody says something, and it's a totally innocuous statement. They don't mean anything by it. And you get all defensive. You get all insecure. You know, they said this, and they're questioning this, and blah, 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 blah. And there's a spiral into insecurity. I, I know that's not your problem. That's just mine. But, but anyhow, that's just an example of, you know, the noetic principle. And so, naturally, uh, the way that we interpret things is going to have issues because we're sinners and because of the effects of the fall. Well, the, noetic, the, the problem here with this thinking coming out of the Enlightenment is the human mind is a perfectly clean slate, no issues with it, uh, and, and we're just we're very, very powerful, very, very smart. We're just so darn smart. Um, and so that's a, that's a problem because, you know, if, if you're coming from a position of historic Christianity, you believe that humanity, you know, there's a reason that Jesus and the rest of Scripture describes us as sheep. It's because we're, we're just not very smart. I, I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but we, we really are limited. We're not God. And so when we start to think of human reason um, as above or equivalent or pretty darn close to God, there's, there's a real problem and the train will go off the tracks. 
right, next, humanity becomes the authority over God. That's been covered. And then scientific approaches to metaphysical issues. So um, we're going to see this in a second, but when it comes to scripture, there starts to become this, you know, we need to study scripture in scientific terms, basically dismissing the possibility of the metaphysical, dismissing the possibility of a living God at work um, in this world. And we need to explain things with the starting point that there's no God involved in this world and there's nothing supernatural that we can know. Um, hey, all right, so next, we're going to look at, you know, what does this mean for Christianity? Uh, and first, we're going to look at, and since we're focusing today on the sources of Revelation, that's what we're going to look at right now. And so, first off, for the Bible, um, there is uh, this kind of new school of biblical studies um, referred to as higher critical scholarship, where everything in the Bible is starting to be questioned. Um, and again, like I said, we're going to take a scientific approach to things. Um, human reason now stands above the Bible. Gone into that. Man's knowledge has evolved to the point where scientific methodology must be applied to text and mythology dispelled. And then scholars must take a critical approach to the Bible. So anyhow, cover that pretty well. Now, for some examples of this. Um, some of you, anybody here take a religion class in college? Okay. Well, um, you know, if you kind of grew up in a you know, nice Orthodox Christian church, you go to college, and you start to hear some things that you're like, your jaw starts to drop that. What? Really? Are you you're saying that no one who's credited to have written any of the books of the Bible actually wrote the books of the Bible? Um, you know, the, the book of Matthew is actually written by a mule in Nigeria? Really? Um, anyhow, <laughs> obviously I'm going over the top there. But anyhow, you start to see um, this new approach to biblical studies where everything, everything that is traditionally believed is I don't want to say automatically, but it's, it's thought to be suspicious and it's surely got to be wrong. Okay? So some examples of this, like uh, the, you know, the Acts of the Apostles, we believe is written by Luke. Um, and you know, we think it's a history of the early church, right? Well, in critical scholarship, there are you know, a bunch of different theories. You've got to get published. So there are a bunch of different theories on what really went on with Acts. And like, for example, one of those is there was a great conflict between Peter and Paul and someone in the church kind of wanted to smooth it over because they wanted to have the appearance of a unified church. And so their explanation for the, for the Acts of the Apostles is that in reality, this was someone in the early church um, writing a version of the early church that portrays Peter and Paul working together with some level of unity to put a better kind of public relations space, relations space on the church because in reality there was so much friction and there was so much tension that no one would want to be a part of the church if we didn't come up with a unified face. And so that's, that's one of the revisionist views on the book of Acts. Three Isaiahs. Uh, and by the way, that's just a, that's the starting point of like, surely, that, that, that's just kind of questioning what seems to be obvious. You know, history of the early church. Um, that's just kind of re- re-envisioning things with the assumption that what we've traditionally believed is wrong. Okay, now, in these next two, you're going to start to see uh, basically like scientific methodology applied to these, these books of the Bible. And, you know, surely, surely they can't be prophecy. Surely God can't speak to man, so we have to have another explanation. So we're going to see the influence of kind of the scientific methodology. And so um, the three Isaiah's theory, for example. Um, so the book of Isaiah, traditionally believed to be one prophet, who had a long, a very long ministry, um, you know, in the 8th century of Israel. Um, but 
you know, if, if anyone, if you've studied Isaiah, you know that Isaiah has some pretty incredible prophecies. Uh, you know, prophecies about the, uh, the Assyrians invading, prophecies about the Babylonian invasion and captivity. Um, those are extremely clear, specific, and they, they come to pass if, you're, if you've, you know, come from a standpoint of actually believing the Bible is God's word. Well, the three Isaiah's theory says there's no way the prophecies could have been this accurate. There's no way. The only explanation is there are multiple authors because this, this you know, second section of Isaiah surely is historical. It's not prophetic because we are dismissing the possibility that there is a living God who can speak to people you know, on this earth and who can you know, foretell the future. And so that's the general basis of the three Isaiah's theory um, is that these prophecies are too accurate and it had to be written by someone a couple of centuries later after the Babylonian captivity. Um, and, so, and then they'll throw in some other nuances, like, see, like he writes more poetically in the first book, but in the second book, it's, 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 you know, it's, more, it's more prosaic. And you see, that's evidence. This is a different author. It's not a possibility that over the, that over the course of 60 years of the man's ministry, that maybe he's going to write with different, different styles and different genres. But anyhow, that's, that's the three Isaiah's theory. Then there's the Daniel theory. If you've studied Daniel, there, you know, there's these prophecies about the rise of these world empires, the, the Greek empire, the Median um, oh, empire, the Roman empire, and there's, that's totally disqualified because the prophecies are so accurate and so on that it would have had to have been written several hundred years later. Um, and so anyhow, so again, because we don't believe that there's the possibility of a, of a God who could communicate prophecies, we have to kind of, we have to have another explanation. We need a scientific explanation for this. Um, now, this is classic. Sorry. I'm getting condescending. I'm getting condescending. Take a step back. Okay. Some of, the, some of these things are just kind of, they really are kind of wacky. Some of the biblical interpretations in critical fellowship. Um, here's another. Now, this is called redacted criticism. This is, uh, this is basically the idea that, um, you know, like the, the New Testament, uh, the, the four Gospels, that uh, the, original, the original guys that are credited to have written them, they didn't write them, and it's really just kind of a collection of people putting things in there and kind of editing it over time. So redactionary criticism is trying to figure out what different supposed editors, um, nameless editors, added. So for example, um, you know, it says in the Bible, um, pay unto Caesar what's due to Caesar, you know, uh, give unto God what's due to God. Well, the real explanation for that is that there was a church leader who was getting friction from the Roman government. And he, uh, he needed to smooth things over with the Roman government. So he added into the Bible that Jesus said you should pay your taxes to the Roman government. And he thought that would be a political move to smooth things over. Is there any primary text evidence of that? None whatsoever. This is pulling things out of here and throwing it against the wall. Or, you know, throwing out hypotheses but it's not anything that's, that's rooted in primary, primary um, text evidence. And then finally, the authorship of books. I mean, no one, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, no one actually wrote those books, okay? Um, that's not, I don't really believe that. Um, but anyhow, for example, the, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you know, the Gospel of Mark, no, you know, the critical scholarship does not believe that Mark wrote it. Um, even though we have like four uh, early second century sources that say, you know, Papias, Irenaeus, um, then you have Tertullian and Eusebius, all these people saying, yeah, Mark, who ministered with Peter, he's the one who wrote down the book. He, he, you know, his source is Peter on the Gospel of Mark. And um, you know, so we have actual evidence of that, but that is, that is dismissed. And 
by the way, like if your kid, when your kid goes to college, this is all that's going to be taught at, you know, in their intro religion class. Sadly, most seminaries, uh, this is all that's taught. Um, the place where I do seminary, you have to learn both sides. You have to incorporate critical sources and you have to incorporate, um, you have to incorporate you know, traditional scholarship as well in all your papers. It has to be balanced. Um, but in a lot of seminaries, most semin- would you say most seminaries? Got it. Okay. Yeah, and by the way, not everything in critical scholarship is bad. Like, there are some things that are valuable. It's just a lot of things are fundamentally way off. Yeah. Uh, one quick question. Uh, the three Isaiah. Yeah. So, like, uh, Isaiah 53. Yeah. heard that it's really not ever read in Jewish congregations because it, it, it so looks like Christ. Yeah, sure. So, is the thought on that that this was written after yeah. Christ? Uh, pro- not after Christ. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what they'd say about Isaiah 53. I'm speaking mainly, and someone else may know. Uh, well, I'm not sure. You can no, jump in, yeah. That, um, that it generally is understood that the, the depiction of Christ was written through the lens of, of Isaiah 53 in order to get a credibility. Um, it, was, it, was so, it was portrayed so like Isaiah 53 to, to lend credibility to oh. the okay. Got it. It's all, it's all a, the assumption in all of these things is that there's political motivation behind right. uh, the writing of Scripture. Everything's kind of a power grab. All right, so move real quickly. Um, yeah, I'm not, we're going to skip this. That just basically is a kind of theological school that believes that uh, truth is evolving. When you hear people say um, truth is evolving, the Bible is just one kind of evidence of God revealing himself in history. And um, you want know, to go back real fast, sorry. That's good. And uh, so, like, when you hear people say, like, you know, on this certain issue, we're trying to discern what the mind of Christ is on this issue in the church or this issue in theology, that kind of stems from this idea of, like, what was said in Scripture in the first century is now, it's different from, from you know, truth is different now than it was then. And so we need to kind of discern what the mind of God is now since it's evolved. This even goes so far as to say that God's character evolves with the... Um, with the, with the actions of man. God's character is dependent upon man's actions and success in their spiritual um, and uh, ethical journey. All right, last, run through this real quick. Uh, Jesus, oh, view of Jesus, okay? Um, Jesus, for the most part, and uh, it starts to, the view of Jesus as fully God and fully man starts to be more and more dismissed. Uh, the idea in kind of uh, critical scholarship is that Jesus, that the claim that Jesus was God, he didn't actually make. Jesus was just a really, really good person. And that, that claim that he was God was, was actually put on him by people in the apostolic age. And so, um, so you have all kinds of things like the Jesus Seminar um, where uh, you know, the, the Bible is reread. And like, for example, here's the kind of encapsulation of what the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar is a, a group of 150 critical scholars. They each had beads. A lot of you all probably know this. And you could, you know, they would read through every scripture and basically vote on whether you thought Jesus actually said it or not. Um, and, you know, the, you know, it's, you can see how very subjective that is. Uh, so anyhow, um, Jesus Seminar's reconstruction of the historical Jesus portrays him as an itinerant Hellenistic Jewish sage and a faith healer who preached a gospel of liberation from injustice in startling parables and aphorisms. An iconoclast, Jesus broke with established Jewish theology dogmas and social conventions, both in teachings and behaviors. Sorry, uh, 
According to the seminar, Jesus was a moral man born of two human parents who did not perform nature miracles, nor die as a substitute for sinners, nor rise bodily from the dead. Sightings of a risen Jesus were nothing more than visionary experience of some of his disciples rather than physical encounters. So you can see that the view of Jesus, like we view Jesus as God. That's, that's my view of Jesus. Um, but like as liberal Christianity, this is, and by the way, this isn't everyone within that camp. There, there's obviously a ton of diversity within the camp. Um, but uh, a, a large part of the movement is away from Jesus as God and viewing Jesus more as a man and who's an example of morality and social justice for us. All right, so um, finishing up here, what does this mean for Christianity? Uh, next, basically, reason and experience become the source of authority. That's the source of authority. So that's the big difference here between historical Christianity and liberal Christianity as it evolves throughout history is that Historic Christianity says the Bible is our source of authority. We submit to that. We believe it's God's uh, authoritative, inspired word. Um, Whereas liberal Christianity um, sees really the kind of end-all, be-all of authority is our reason, our experience, and then in conjunction with Scripture and our view of of Jesus. Um, And so... So how do we grow from this? All right, a few little closing things here. I don't think there's going to be a ton of time for questions. Uh, like three minutes. But anyhow, uh, first is, you know, I said this earlier, but I think it's something important for all of us to ask, like, why do we believe that God's word is God's word? That's something we need to dig into and have a, have a real um, explanation for. And, and there's, you know, there, there are books for that. I think, uh, anyhow, we can, we can direct you to that. You can talk to the clergy or me. Anyhow, but people need to have an explanation for that. Uh, so that, you have, that gives you confidence that what you're reading is actually from the Lord. Um, how much of our morality and theology is driven subjectively? You know, what we believe about different things, how much of it is uh, our statements on, on different matters begin with I think or I believe versus like what does the Bible say? Um, I know that sounds like very, uh, you know, very simple. We're back in fifth grade Sunday school. But I mean... Uh, you know, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. You know, like, we're, one thing we're big on with our kids is like, hey, drinking underage, it's a sin. Because the Bible says you follow the law, and, um, and you know, the law is that drinking under 21 is against the law. Well, I have to really question myself about how fast I drive. I'm not, I'm not a fast driver. My wife will tell you I'm annoyingly slow when I drive. But if I'm, like, hardcore on the kids about, like, hey, guys, like, y'all need to be submitting to the law here, I really need to question myself about, okay, am I being subjective in my thinking about the way I drive? Am I, <laughs> anyhow, sorry. I know I'll probably get a lot of people riled up here. But, but I'm just saying, like, we really do need to check our views, check our behavior, check our morality and ethics against Scripture if, if we're coming from this historic standpoint and we're like, it's the Bible, it's the Bible, and you people in the liberal camp are wrong. We really need to examine ourselves and let the Bible inform us on where we fall short. And then... Um, how big, a part, how big a part of our life is scripture? I mean, do I read more about Alabama football or more, read more scripture? I don't really want to answer that publicly. Um, but we really need to, you know, really, honestly, if we, if we say, if we're coming from this position where we're, you know, we're orthodox and, you know, we've got it right, well, I mean, how, how big is the Bible in our life in reading? And so that's, uh, I know that's, I'm, in all these things, I'm really, I'm really convicting myself here. So, so anyhow, um, anybody have any questions? It's uh, 10 till right now. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, basically, with that idea of the noetic principle, I've never heard that term. Um, would an example be of that when um, 
you see, uh, of course, I would never do this, <laughs> but <laughs> you see somebody um, condemn, do something, and then turn around the same day and condemn somebody else doing the same thing. Yeah. And we do that time and time totally. again. We are so intolerant. And I'm so intolerant with things in my children that uh, I do. Totally. That's why it's ringing so true. I mean, is that exactly the same? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it, like we interpret the world in a, in a, in a flawed way. Um, and, yeah, we totally, we can't, we can't see our issues, you know. I, you know, we, we see a, another person's issues. I, I'm, I'm not going to tell my story from yesterday. But someone who just, clearly there's something way off and they can't figure it out. And it's like, hey, dude, this is very obvious what the problem is. Yeah, that would be an example of it. We just interpret the world. Um, because of our original sin. Uh, Miss Wilson. What I don't understand, Karen, is if what you say is true about some areas and what they teach, sure. why would anyone go into the priesthood and take their vows? I, I, it makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Joe, do you have any response to that? <laughs> All the tough ones. We're going to pass over to Joe. I It may seem wacky from our perspective, but often the people who are really trying to be faithful. Yeah, totally. Um, and we would disagree with their their starting point, as you said. Yeah. Um, there are uh, there are. I mean, this, as you said, there's a huge spectrum. Yeah. Of belief. Totally, totally. You get the the breast theology, and <laughs> you get people who are really in the middle. And like we'll talk about this next week. Like there are a ton of things that liberal Christianity is really, really strong on, that the Protestant church is really weak on, and like it's it's can make kind of a shame on you for us. Yeah. And then we do yeah. Go ahead. Next week. I was wondering if you thought that if we as the Orthodox evangelical church, particularly in the South, if there's sort of a battle between Orthodox and historic Christianity, if the Orthodox Church has damaged itself by overreacting to some of this stuff by being anti-mercy ministry or being yeah. on the wrong side of the civil rights movement or things like that yeah. that really sort of blew our credibility. 100%. The fundamentalist movement is a reaction to the liberal movement in the church. The fundamentalist movement completely hyper-spiritualizes Christianity. It's like, well, and why would we feed the poor in Africa when they're going to hell? Like, we need to share the word with them. And they completely neglect the poor and it's entirely reactionary. Um, and... Uh, yeah, 100%. The Protestant church in reaction does hurt itself. Sorry, you had your hand raised. Yeah. Are you going to get into how, where the line is or, or how the line is blurred between what the Bible actually says and what tradition says and, and how our liturgy, for example, is more tradition, I suppose, than where did all that come from? And uh, those of us who may not be... Uh, great biblical scholars, yeah. we rely a lot on this tradition, sure. and we don't know where it came from. Uh, you know, why do we buy a processional cross going down the aisle? So yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, so that's not my wheel. I, I won't get into that. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's not my wheelhouse, and I, I wouldn't have the... Yeah, you're right. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, but no, I probably won't get into that a ton. What I'm going to look at next week is kind of like what are some of the uh, theological differences from view of man, view of salvation, view of eschatology, and, and kind of how are they manifested in the church, and what are some positives of the liberal church, what are some negatives of the liberal church next week. So, um, I think, do I need to...
Yeah, it's seven minutes till. So I'll tell you, um, I'll pray for us and let you go. Thanks for thanks for indulging me, um, Lord. We thank you for goodness and loving kindness. Uh, pray, Jesus, that uh, you would reveal to us the reality of our sin and um, the reality of your graciousness to us, Lord. And we would walk in the uh, the truth of the gospel and pray to you, Lord, that. Um, Pray, Lord, that your word would be um, bigger in our life. You give us a hunger and a desire to, to read and study scripture. And um, I pray to you, God, that if anyone has doubts or questions, um, Lord, we just trust your Holy Spirit to be faithful in answering those and, and guiding us towards what is true. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Thanks.